The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. If you have your Bibles, then let's please open them to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. And today I want to return to the theme of last week's message. Our subject was the unity of believers. And I want to come back to this again today to drill down a little further on this vitally important subject that is good for the well-being of God's people. The second chapter of Ephesians was our subject last week. And there we observed how Paul speaks of both Jews and Gentiles who are brought into the covenant of grace. And the divisions between these two groups are broken down as we are reconciled to God through the cross. That is the beginning point of our unity. And I want to preach on this again because of the terrible misunderstanding of many who believe that unity among Christians is paramount no matter how much we must sacrifice to make it happen. But the truth is that not all Christians teach what they should. Their doctrines are not good for the cause of Christ, for the gospel of Christ. There is no doubt that the scriptures teach unity, but they also teach that we must separate from those whose attitudes and teachings on essential doctrines are not according to the truth of Scripture. In Ephesians 4, the apostle begins the practical part of this letter. The first part was filled with good and sometimes difficult doctrine. And now in chapter 4, he begins applications of his teachings. Now in verse number 1, in this fourth chapter, he writes, I therefore... The prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Now, in this verse, we notice one of Paul's often used phrases, that is to walk worthy. And he used that phrase to refer to the believer's life. Your walk is the way that you live your life. And he says that there is a vocation to which you are called. This vocation is the gospel and the glory of Christ Each of us that is a believer is a minister. We are servants that are engaged in the service of Jesus Christ. We also notice that walking worthy is an attitude. In the second verse is the attitude of Christians with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. And now in verse number three, this attitude is enables an integral part of the Christian life. And what is that? According to the apostle, it is unity. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And this is our theme, the unity of believers in the spirit. Last week, we approached unity on the macro level. We saw how that Christians are unified because we are all citizens of the kingdom of God. And we are unified because we are in the family of God. And we are even closer in our unity when we become members of the Lord's church. Unity uh, in these three areas is what I would call the macro level of Christianity. 
But now I'd like for us to drill down into the micromanagement of our Christianity. And this is your personal life and how what you do is your endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, for you to be a part of keeping your church unified, you must always remember that it is your purpose to glorify Christ. It's not to make a name for yourself. It's not to promote your individualism. You are a part of a body that works together and your worthy walk is to promote all things that glorify our Lord. Now, if you would turn back a few pages to chapter one, you can see God's ultimate purpose in Christ is unity. In the 10th verse, he writes that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. God's plan from the beginning was to bring the entire creation back into fellowship with him and to reconcile all things, that is to unify all things in Jesus Christ. And you and I, as God's people, are central in this purpose. And this is because that man is the highest order of God's creation. And for God to be successful in his plan to unify the creation, then, of course, his people must be reconciled and unified. This unification began on the macro level, level, starting with us being subjects of his kingdom. And then it progresses to the micro level by every thought and every motive of the individual brought under control of the spirit so that we are at peace. This is our subject today, that you, the individual believer, must make God's objective your objective. He wants unity. And that makes your chief objective unity. Now, the cause of Christ is served by unity. Now, I want you to notice today two, two aspects of this unity. The first is the production of unity. Now, the Apostle Paul very well understood what happens when churches aren't unified. I mean, never mistake this, that God will have his way. God does have his will. But there are times when our actions hinder the cause of Christ. Since we're not yet in our glorified bodies, every day is a struggle with the desires of the flesh. The Apostle John called it the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And he said that these are contrary to the cause of Christ because they are not of the Father. When we become believers, where do we begin reconciling ourselves to our brothers now that we have been reconciled to God? And that is a good question but one that is often answered wrongly. Most of the Christian world says that we are to begin outwardly. That is, that we begin to look for our common denominators, we look for our common causes, and we determine that we will work towards defeating our common enemy. And that sounds good, but it's not the approach that Paul uses in this passage. He doesn't begin with externals. Oh, oh, he will come to externals. And certainly there is a common cause that all Christians are a part of. But rather than starting with the externals, Paul wants to examine, wants you to examine where you are, who you are, examine your faith and your attitude 
And there must be a change in you before you can ever hope to affect a change in this world. Well, what is Paul's approach? Well, he begins with internal unity. Unity begins on the inside and then works its way to the outside. And so you must first be aligned on the inside to be aligned with the Holy Spirit who lives in you, the one that you are intricately connected with so that your movements and the Holy Spirit's movements are one and the same. And this is Paul's method, as we will note in just a few minutes, as we examine verse number two. So Paul starts with you. What are you? How are you changed? How is your attitude the attitude of Christ? And that is not the usual method of Christian cooperation. There is little self-examination that happens among those who want to be unified with others. They're ruled by the external. They're ruled by the common cause rather than being sure that the Holy Spirit rules their thoughts and attitudes in their causes. The spirit of ecumenicism is too often not the spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but the hope that if we focus on ways that we are like externally, then eventually they will work their way internally. Ecumenicism says, and if you don't understand that term, it simply means cooperation among Christians. Ecumenicism says, well, we we see that you have a steeple on your church and we have a steeple on our church, so we must be alike. You have a service on Sunday and we have a service on Sunday, and so we are alike. You say that you are serving Christ, that you are preaching Christ, and we say that we are too. And so, therefore, we must be alike. Well, my thoughts today are primarily about the internal workings of the church within this body of Christians that meets in this location. But I must also mention that on the church level, with those who want to unite, the bases can't be externals that we assume are the same. They must be internals that we know are the same, and these internals are found solely in the Word of God. Now, what I've just told you is an overview of the explanation of the next observation. The internals of the church are its doctrine. For you and me to walk together, we must have doctrinal unity. The first three chapters of Ephesians are doctrinal. And the doctrine that Paul explains is monumental. It's glorious. It is uplifting. And it anchors every part of the Christian life to the sovereign pleasure of Almighty God. It begins with God's plan from eternity past. When God, according to his own good pleasure, chose those who would be brought to him and reconciled to him by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, he told us why this election, why this choosing is necessary. And it's because we are dead in trespasses and sin, and we have no ability to come to Christ unless he should make us alive and give us the grace to come. Paul's doctrine is the same as Jesus, who told us that he came to die for those the Father chose, and that the Holy Spirit works effectually in them to bring them to repentance and faith. Now, I want you to understand that unity among Christians is first founded in the unity of the Trinity. Salvation is Trinitarian as the Godhead works in perfect harmony to affect all aspects of eternal salvation. 
And so our doctrine must recognize this unity that God is sovereign in its implementation. And this is the way that Paul begins the letter. He sets forth doctrine, doctrines that still are to this day argued against by those who want unity without doctrine. But we look and see how he begins the first verse of chapter four. He begins with, I, therefore, therefore, because of the preceding doctrine that I've discussed with you, I can talk with you about unity. Now, if you look up the page to chapter three, verses 10 and 11, he says to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. After Paul states this, he goes into a prayer, and then he begins chapter 4 with, therefore. And this means that what he says next is based upon the doctrine of the preceding chapters. And therefore, if there is to be unity... It must take its cue from doctrine. To be unified, we must have the same doctrine. Well, I'm sad to say that the only thing that will establish unity among churches is the thing that is most strongly avoided. Doctrinal discussions are avoided because people know that doctrine will divide us. Now, if you'll permit, I'll I'll give you an example of personal experience with this from the trip that we had to Israel a few years ago. We were a part of a tour group with Christians that were from various backgrounds, and there were a couple of other preachers also in the group besides me. And I sat down with them at lunch one day, and if you know me, you know that I won't discuss for very long without Bible and doctrine being the focus. Now, I'm sorry, that, uh, but I'm more interested in what you believe about the scriptures than I am about what you think of the weather and sports and politics or anything else. And so I thought that I might have a discussion with these uh, preachers, these, these men about doctrine, just to get their understanding of some things that I was curious about. I mean, what I was really trying to do is to find out what flavor they were. That is, what do they believe? What doctrines define them. Well, it wasn't planned to be antagonistic or anything of the sort, but instead, when I mentioned doctrine and asked questions, it shattered the peace of the world, it seems like. They were surprised. They were dumbfounded that I would want to talk about doctrine. Why would I want to talk about doctrine? I mean, didn't I know this, that doctrine has the potential to divide? And what an unpleasant trip it would be for Christians to get together and travel with one another and discuss the Bible. We're supposed to be unified despite our differences. And so this discussion fell flat because they wouldn't discuss. Later, when we were at the garden tomb, the group was supposed to observe communion. And I was asked to help officiate. But I wouldn't even attend. Why? Well, because tour groups have no authority to observe communion. Communion is a church ordinance. And so how could we observe the Lord's Supper together when Paul clearly taught that before we do, the church must be in unity, no divisions when the supper is observed. Evidently, I had no unity with them. They wouldn't discuss doctrine. And what I'm what I'm telling you is that Paul's point in verse number three is that unity is theological. 
Unity is doctrinal. We can't set aside doctrine and hope to be unified on some other basis because that's not Paul's meaning of Christian unity. Folks, this is unity in the faith. And our faith is defined by our doctrine. There is a reason that we have Baptists on our sign. And that's because I will teach you doctrine that is based on the historical theological understanding of Baptists that are of like faith and order to the church that Jesus founded. And I I don't care to tell you anything that's not the faith of Jesus and the apostles because this is the basis of our unity. Now, for example, with many churches, we are not unified in our doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We don't agree with the continuation of sign gifts and that speaking in tongues is evidence of salvation or a superior anointing of the spirit. We don't agree with that. And we believe that charismania is the work of evil spirits, not the Holy Spirit. And I would say that is a major division. Now, in verses five and six, you see one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. Those are doctrines. And we have specific viewpoints on these doctrines. And then there are other doctrines that are important. Uh, I'll save those because I want to preach more messages on this doctrinal aspect of our unity. And so before there is unity, we must be agreed upon in doctrine. Our doctrine is founded only in those teachings that are supported by Christ and the apostles and the prophets and the 66 books of the infallible, inspired word of God. So why don't we have meetings with Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses and Roman Catholics and many others? It's because their teachings are not dependent on holy scriptures alone. We have no unity with those who want to elevate their writings and their teachings to the level of or equal to or above the level of scripture alone. Sola Scriptura, scriptures alone are the basis of our doctrinal unity. Well, I've gone off and talked about being unified with other churches when mainly what I want to speak to you about is the unity of individuals in this church. Now, obviously, inside the church, we must have doctrinal unity. The members of Berean Baptist Church must agree with our statement of faith, which is a summary of what we believe about Bible doctrine. Internal unity must be on the same basis as external unity. Both are built on theological doctrinal agreement. Now, our church would have endless strife if every time that I stood in the pulpit, the membership said, well, we can't agree with that. What you say is not true. What you say is not the correct Bible interpretation. Well, if enough of you think that way, then what you should do is send me packing because I'm not going to change the way that I preach. We'll never be happy with each other and stand together and be unified unless we stand on the same doctrines of God's word, the same standards. Unity is produced internally with agreed upon doctrine. And that's what the word therefore signifies In verse number one. Well, now we need to get even more practical by getting down to the personal level. What is going on inside of you that will produce unity? Well, Paul ends verse number one with walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. What's between walk worthy and endeavoring 
to keep the unity of the spirit. Well, in between those two phrases is our second observation, the preservation of unity. Here we find four concepts in verse number two that lead to the unity of believers in the spirit. This is the endeavoring that Paul speaks of. This is the work of walking worthy. And if we are to preserve the unity between us that has begun in our reconciliation to God, then we must know and practice these concepts. The four that he gives in the passage are lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearance. These characterize the attitude of believers. But what does the apostle mean by each of these? First, he says lowliness. And he means to seek humility. The first method of preserving unity is the way that you look at self. The Apostle John said the pride of life is of the world, that it's not of the Father. And we've learned in Scripture that Christians are dead to the world, which means that would include being dead to pride. Pride is the foundation of sin because Satan introduced sin into the world through pride. Now, it used to be that although people have always been prideful, at least they tried to act like they weren't. That's not the case today. There is no attempt at humility as even the theology of many churches has changed to the doctrine of self-esteem. Theology has shifted to being about us instead of about God. The self-esteem and positive thinking gospel got its rolling start, as we know it here in America today, got its rolling start with Norman Vincent Peale in 1952 with his book, The Power of Positive Thinking. That idea was continued and popularized even more by Robert Schuller, who taught that the gospel itself is not God-centered, but man-centered. The most popular preaching today is this self-esteem gospel that produced the ministry of biblically ignorant ministers like Joel Osteen and those that are imitators of him. Now, what I want to say next is not a political statement. This is a theological assessment of how positive thinking and self-esteem influences people against the gospel and the teachings of the New Testament. Is it any wonder that when Donald Trump was asked about repentance from sin, that he said he had nothing to repent of. How did he reach the conclusion that there is nothing wrong with his life when the Bible teaches and Paul said that God commands all people everywhere to repent? How could he say that he didn't need to repent? Well, is it any coincidence that he grew up attending Norman Vincent Peale's church in Manhattan, and he was married there. This is the doctrine that was the doctrine of his home as he grew up. His father was a follower of Norman Vincent Peale. And the power of positive thinking and self-esteem has made Donald Trump an unrelenting narcissist. And the sad thing of it is he has a worldwide stage to display his pride. Pride will not let you repent because you refuse to admit sin. Now, as I said, that's not a political statement. Uh, you can make your own assessment about how that relates to the ability to govern. And it's certainly not an endorsement of the other party. Now, I agree with Albert Moeller of the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, who said that he would vote for Donald Trump only 
because voting for the other side was unthinkable. Uh, a party platform that denies God and exalts the sins of Romans 1 is unthinkable. It's unfathomable that a Christian could vote for that. Well, you might not see this, but in the analysis of, of Ephesians chapter 2, there is the destruction of pride in verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul says you can't have any part of your salvation. You can't do anything to work for it because your work would be the cause for boasting. Any human intervention involves personal achievement, and that leaves room for pride. So even your faith, the Bible teaches, even your faith must come from God. So it's prideful to say, I am saved because I decided to accept Christ. No, you are saved because God decided to accept the sacrifice of Christ for you. And the basis of your acceptance is not the decision that you made, but because Christ gave his life in sacrifice to redeem you, and God accepts you based on what he did, not on what you do. And Paul's statement in Ephesians 2.9 is perfectly consistent with his comment in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that we were chosen and predestined to the adoption of children according to the good pleasure of God's will. And that is the only way that salvation can work, because it's the only way that destroys human pride. And so every born-again believer must exclude boasting of self and humble himself under the mighty hand of God. As Peter wrote, God will exalt us in due time. And when we try to start that process of exaltation by ourselves, it will cause conflict in the church. The church rejects individualism. It rejects pride because we're never to settle on self-interest above the interest of others. Pride produces competition. My pride will trample your rights if I think I can gain an advantage by it. Humility keeps me in my place. Humility is the awareness that shows that I'm an unworthy sinner who deserves nothing but the wrath of God. Humility gives me Christ awareness. But if I am to walk worthy, I understand that I must strive to walk in the perfection of Christ. God says, be holy, for I am holy. And so I must see Christ as my only standard of righteousness. Now, Christ demonstrated humility in a graphic way. I mean, what is it that we would expect the Son of God would do when he came to this earth? Wouldn't we expect that he would walk around with his head held high, that he would wear a crown of gold on his head, that he would have royal robes and would demand that his subjects kiss his ring. But what did he do? John records in John 13, If I then, Jesus says, if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye ought also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done unto you. Could you do this? Could you humble yourself enough to wash someone's feet? Would you scrub the church bathroom floors and clean the toilets? Jesus would have. Humility must be pursued. It's not something that comes automatically and easily. 
You must work at subduing self. And then when you think that you have arrived, it will never let you say, I'm humble. Now I am humble because the moment that you say you are, you aren't. When you reach this level of humility, the best that you will ever say is, I am an unprofitable servant. Now, Paul stated this concept another way in Philippians chapter 2, and he used this same word, lowliness. He said, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Secondly, to preserve unity, he says meekness. And by meekness, he means to maintain power with control. Now, if someone refers to a person as meek, what do you think? Well, most often we think that meekness equals weakness. That a meek person is a mealy mouth type of person, a pipsqueak, a mouse, not a man. But meekness in the Bible is never meant that way. It has nothing to do with being timid or being a wallflower. The Bible says that Moses was the meekest of all men. And who would call Moses anything other than courageous? Who would call him anything but a man's man? Oh, meekness in the Bible means to be a person with a gentle spirit, one who maintains his self-control. It's someone who's never vengeful or vindictive. Jesus used the word meek in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, how would someone who is timid and mousy inherit the earth? How would he conquer the earth? Well, he can't. To become meek means that all that your thoughts and your actions are under the control of the Holy Spirit. You are not self-assertive, but God-assertive, and your will is surrendered to his will. The origin of this word meek is an interesting one. It comes from a word that means to tame a wild animal. It's like in the in the old west when they would when they would trap a bronco and they would take the horse and they would break it. They would break the horse, meaning that they break his strong will so the horse can be controlled. Now, the horse is as physically strong as he ever was. It's just that his spirit and his energy is channeled in a different direction. And this is what Paul means. Our will must be broken. When is there strife in the church? Well, it's when somebody wants something and they will have their way no matter what. And so many times the pastor is a mediator between strong-willed people. Often I must make decisions that deny your will for the good of the entire body. Now, I try to exercise that authority, I, I, the authority that I have as pastor. I try to do that without overstepping into areas where it's not wise to intrude. Well, let me give you an example of meekness under control. Jesus had power under control. When the soldiers came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter thought that it was best to defend Jesus. So he took out his sword and he cut off a man's ear. Peter thought that was the right thing to do. Jesus said in Matthew 26:53, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? One angel is certainly enough or more than enough. Jesus said, I can get 12 legions of angels. Jesus had the power to end his arrest with a snap of his fingers. But what was the greater good? 
The greater good was the cross. Oh, he would be delivered from death, but that deliverance would come through his resurrection, not the prevention of the cross. And that's because if there was no cross, there would be no salvation. Jesus had the power, but the power that he possessed was subject to the Father's will. And so he restrained his power. Well, here's a worthy distinction that we need to observe. A person who is meek uh, is not timid and even might display anger. Godly people can become angry. But when they're angry, it should be because there is an offense against God, not because there is an offense against them personally. Now, if you criticize me, that's okay. But if you do it to damage the church and this ministry, then I have a right to be angry. But in my anger, I'd better not leave blood splattered on everybody. Oh, I must be controlled in my response. Jesus became angry. He purged the temple of the money changers. His anger was righteous and it didn't cause physical harm to anyone. It wasn't the time to throw all of those people into hell, which he could have done. Oh, Jesus was never out of control. He was a model of self-control. Now we move on to the next word in verse number two. This is the word long-suffering. And this means patiently endure. Patience is perhaps the hardest of all Christian virtues because there's only one way to get it. Patience comes through suffering. The Bible students are painfully aware of this next scripture, Romans 5, 3. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. Whenever I think of patience, uh, maybe we would turn to Job, who was a model of patience. But one, one person that I think of with patience is Noah. Noah building the ark in the middle of dry ground. Nobody had seen rain before. I'm sure nobody had seen a boat like Noah was building. Nobody had seen a flood before because without rain or some cataclysmic event, how would you have a flood? I suspect there'd never been an earthquake until the fountains of the deep were broken up. But Noah was out there day after day for 120 years building the ark. And I know that God could have shortened the time that it took to build it. He could have enabled Noah to finish building the ark in 10 years, maybe in five years or less if he wanted. But Noah stayed out there for 120 years. And every day there were people that came by and they laughed and they pointed and they said, what a fool you are, Noah. But he kept on. And when the flood came, I believe that Noah by then was ready to rest and to spend time in the ark. But you know something? Uh, we don't often mention this, but after Noah locked the animals in the ark, it was still seven days before the rain started. Now, how stupid would you feel if you had an ark full of animals in a boat like nobody's ever seen before and still there is no rain and it's sitting out there on dry ground? Well, if 120 years building the ark had taught Noah anything, it was that he could endure seven more days of ridicule. You see, his patience was built by 120 years of suffering ridicule. And so whenever you're in a trial, whenever you're going through a trial and you're anxious for God to do something about that trial, to end that trial, you need to think about Noah. 
that God has a purpose in trials. He may not come today. He may not come tomorrow. It may not be next week because he knows trials work patience. God's delays are filled with God's purposes. It's like when when Jesus delayed after he was told that Lazarus was sick and he let Lazarus die. There was a reason for it. And that reason worked out for God's glory and for Lazarus good. So this is what we must do. We must learn to wait on God. And if we patiently endure in our trials, the common experience of trusting God will increase the unity of our church. Now, I could very well apply that to the situation that we're in now with this COVID-19 crisis and uh, people are shut up in their houses. We can't have church and we're anxious and we're we want God to do something about it. But what have we noticed through this trial, when we could have church, the unity of our church was greatly increased by the trial that we endure. Now, the final word we find in verse number two, it's the word forbearing. What does it mean? Well, it means just simply to be easy to live with. This is another one of those difficult qualities for Christians to master. I won't mention any names, but in the past three or four years, We had a lady attend our church that was just plainly difficult to live with. She couldn't come to church without help because she didn't drive. And so we would have someone pick her up and take her home every week. But this lady was a complainer. She didn't like anything about anything that you tried to do for her. And so you talk about patience. I had to encourage much patience for people to give her a ride because it wasn't pleasant to be abused by her every week. We had a couple that was constantly a thorn in the flesh. After I preached a sermon, it would never fail that there was something that these folks would want to argue about. And they would always choose to take their argument to the front door of the church right after the service was over as I'm shaking hands and people are going home. And I remember it was one night after a communion service, one of the sweetest times that we've had in the church. And I was feeling good about the service. This gentleman came to the door and afterwards uh, there standing at the door, he, he started in on me, wanted to argue. He didn't like something that I said during the service. That was before the communion service took place, but he didn't like something I said. And so he started in on me with one of these arguments. And it was all I could do to keep from hitting him over the head with a chair. Some people are hard to live with. And they make everybody around them miserable. They complain and they want everybody to hear their complaint. Do you understand this is the way that some people are built? I mean, no matter what you try to do for them and try to help them, they will abuse you. What are you supposed to do in that situation? How can you maintain unity when you have people like that in the church? And thank God they're not all that way, but there are some. So how do you maintain unity? Well, listen to this scripture. Is this hard to do? This one also comes from the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5:43, Jesus said, You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, 
He sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Uh, I could go on and read the entire quote. I think most of you are familiar with it. And it's obvious that the primary subject of the quote are not God's people, but people who hate God's people. So this is not speaking of a church members. But the point is well made in the illustration that if we are to treat our enemies with kindness and with thoughtfulness and with prayer, then how much are we to forbear with those that are in our church, members of our church, who may offend us unintentionally and really they don't have intent to harm us? Let me tell you what I've learned in 60 years of Christianity and even more so in the years of pastoring this church. People will hurt you. They often do things that they don't recognize are extremely hurtful. Sometimes, unfortunately, it may be purposeful. Some people will try to get under your skin. They do try to get under mine, I think. I couldn't survive being the pastor if I let those offenses stick in me and give me a bitter spirit. And so I choose to let those things go and assume that there was no harm intended Ninety nine percent of the time, if you offend me, you'll never know it because I'm not going to treat you differently because of it. So I'll just go on here and tell you that Jesus said, if you love those that love you, then how have you done anything more than a heathen would do? They love the people that love them. It's when you love those that offend you that he says he will give a righteous reward. He ended chapter five by saying, be ye therefore perfect. Even as your father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Now, that is a great verse. And uh, when we studied the book of Matthew years and years and years ago, we spent a good deal of time on that verse. And I could give you a long theological explanation of the many reasons that Jesus said this, but I can reduce it now to this. This is his example. All of this is his example. Who crucified Christ? It was his enemies. Who did Christ die for? His enemies. The Bible says that we were all the enemies of God. We're all hostile against God. He died for ungodly sinners. And folks, we are those sinners. And this is his example of how you treat your enemies. But it goes even further, doesn't it? When we think about it, once we've been saved, do Christians offend Christ? The answer is yes, because every disobedience offends the majesty and the glory of Christ. Well, what does Christ do about that? Does he cast you off? Does he stop loving you? Never. He always forgives. No matter how many times, he always forgives. So Christ is that example of being forbearing. Now, when I pray every day, I thank God that he is forbearing because I sin every day. And yet I find there's not once that I've failed to find forgiveness. And this is the reason that I've learned not to be offended by church members and retaliate against them. Christ would not. Christ would not. And he doesn't treat me as I so often treat him. Now, if every church member's offense against another was treated in this way, what do you think that it would do for our unity? Would we have fights? Would there be divisions among us? Would there be bitterness among us? No. It preserves unity. Paul wrote, or rather Peter, in 1 Peter 4, 8, And above all things have fervent 
Charity, fervent love among yourselves for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. And do you see how Paul in our text pretty much states the same thing about being forbearing in love? And then he says in the third verse, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Unity in the bond of peace. Love covers a multitude of sins. It keeps us at peace with each other. Now consider then what you can do on the individual level to promote unity in the church. It starts on the inside with your attitude. Humility, meekness, patience, forbearance. These are the qualities that we start with for the church to find internal unity. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we're able to look into your word today. Lord, there are truths here that we need to take down into our souls. We need to consider very carefully the way that we act towards each other. As we've seen in the scriptures, God's goal, the Father's goal in Christ was to unify the creation and bring it back to himself And we are that integral connection, the necessary connection as God's highest order of creation. We must be unified. We must be reconciled for the entire creation to benefit. Lord, we pray that you would speak to our people's hearts today. Uh, we uh, We experience the trials that we've talked about, the problems that we're going through. It's agonizing. Even as I walked into the church building today and come to an empty room, there's discouragement in that. And sitting day after day without the fellowship of God's people, there is much discouragement in it. And and we would be tempted to give up. It's a trial. God's people are meant to be together. Lord, we thank you that uh, through these trials, Patience is gained, that our Christian character is strengthened as we endure them day by day. And then when we come together, we see just as it was a few weeks ago when we ended the the first period of closures of churches, that we came together and worked together and we saw a magnificent, a magnificent spirit among the members of the church as we were finally able to get together to hear the word of God in the same place. Lord, help us to endure these trials, build our patience, and then bring us back together again. We look forward to it. Help us, Lord, then, as we consider this message today, how paramount that unity is to your church. We we really can't be a church without being unified. We're all in the body of Christ. We're all members of one body, and we are a part of each other. Help us in this unity. And then, uh, Lord, as we closed services today or this this recording today we want to think about those who may listen to it and be lost never having received jesus christ as savior the word of god does say that god commands all people everywhere to repent we are sinners against you and no one will escape the punishment of sin unless they come to jesus christ in a repentant faith Trusting him to save them from all of their sins and make them righteous in the eyes of the holy God. Lord, we pray that you might make that truth known to some person today 
And then when we are able to come together or even before that we hear from them and hear that they have received Christ as Savior. It's all good news when we hear these kinds of reports. Lord, thank you for this time we've had together today. Bless our people. Bless our friends. All those who hear the the message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, now we want to give you a word of benediction. I I would like to look at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And again, I think of how all the scriptures that we've read today will bring us into the unity of the faith and how God expects us to act and live and walk worthy. It's all connected. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the apostle says, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. Now that there is Paul in his desire to see the Thessalonian church that he had been so long parted from. He wanted to see them. And he goes on and he says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end, to the end, that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Unity, established, being unblameable, being holy, that's what the Lord calls his church to do and to be. We thank you for listening to the word of God today. We'll have a word of prayer with you and we'll be, I would, I would say dismissed, but I don't have anybody dismiss here. So uh, you're dismissed to get up from your couch and go eat breakfast. Heavenly Father, thank you for your many blessings today. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the time we've spent in it. Bless all of our families and may they have a good day today as they worship you in their own homes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go with God. Be safe. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Broner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.